This is Cop Talk, talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mamet and Detective Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective. And I'm here with my co-host, retired captain of police, Ed Mamet. Hello, listeners. Glad to be here with our distinguished guest, Andrew Giuliani. Yes, thank you, Ed. So today our guest, we're honored to have Andrew Giuliani here in the studio, live in person. Andrew, welcome. Guys, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate this. You know, I grew up with cops literally on me from the time I was seven years old, even before that in the campaign, on my detail. And, and uh, these are guys that uh, I really fell in love with. And I had uh, learned a real respect for what what went into the men and women that put the badge on each day. One of the guys is actually my confirmation sponsor, as a matter of fact, and, and there are about a dozen retired NYPD detectives that I stay very, very close with. So, Yeah, I know many detectives that were on your detail, and they said, your detail was the best, having Andrew. <laughs> Andrew was the best. It was a lot of fun. I hope Especially, I didn't run him into the ground too often, because no, no, I, no. be, I, no. I, could, I could be a bit of a pain at times. So. Yeah, but they love throwing the ball around with you and Get out as you get older, getting onto the golf course with yeah. you as well. So I understand you're a very good golfer as well. One of my first uh, golfing partners, you just saw my dad out there. He was one of them, but was Terry Mulvey, who uh, passed away about six, a couple days after my daughter was born. And uh, I miss him every day. I think about him all the time. And he's just, you know, there's so many heroes. I know we're going to talk about this here throughout the next bit of time. But when I think about the last couple of years in terms of the way our cops have been portrayed in the media, I can't tell you how many heroes that I've seen day in and day out that go put the badge on, they kiss their wife and kids goodbye, sometimes before the sun even rises, and they all they want to do is make their community safer when they're on the job or, or when they're off. So to me, I think it's so important to make sure that we push back on some of this fake narrative that we've seen over the last three or four years. Yes. Andrew, once again, welcome to the WBC family. I understand you have a new radio show on Sundays between 3 and 4 p.m. here on WBC Radio, as well as a podcast, uh, Not That Andrew, it's called, correct? Not That Andrew? Yeah, exactly. I, I think the name Andrew has been dragged through the mud the last couple of years between Andrew Cuomo and between Prince Andrew. So my friends and I say that, you know, I need to MAGA, I need to make Andrew great again. So that's why we're, we're saying Not That Andrew. That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about your show as well as your podcast? Yeah, sure. So, you know, look, with the show and the podcast, what I've wanted to do is I've wanted to have guests all across the, the different things that I find interesting. So that's obviously politics, both local and national. We have Councilwoman Vicki Palladino, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. This week coming up, Corey DeAngelis, who, is, who has done an amazing job at the school choice and charter schools revolution, basically, at the front of this all across the country in, in all these different states. And then we'll have some interesting sports characters like David Wells in celebration of the 25-year anniversary of the 1998 Yankees team. And we'll have some interesting ones coming up as well. So I wanted to basically engage people in terms of politically what we can do from an action plan to make our city and state and country a safer and better place, but then also have some smiles and joke around a little bit as well and enjoy our time together. Being the son of probably the best mayor this city ever had. Oh, thank you. You have your own reputation, uh, which is growing by the day. Thank you. Can you tell us something about your background? Sure, sure. So I, uh, I had the opportunity for not the last four years, but between 2017 and the beginning of 2021 to work in the White House under President Trump. And it was an incredible four years. 
when you think about what was done for our country and sadly what we're seeing now over the last two plus years with this current administration, you can see that in President Trump, there was a guy and an administration that was willing to go in day in and day out, even though the media was continually fighting against the president. And he just wanted to make his country a better and a safer place. And I think I learned a whole lot from that, including one of the things that was really close to my heart that I had the opportunity to work on was the opioid task force. And that was headed in the White House by Kellyanne Conway. And we got to see really what our DEA agents, but also what our border agents, what so many different police forces around the country are doing to fight against these opioids that are coming into our country. And and one of the things I was so proud of was in 2019, for the first time in over 30 years, we actually saw a reduction in opioid deaths in America by 17%. So every single year from the late 80s all the way until 2019, opioid deaths went up in the country. And it finally started to go down, turning around that big Titanic of a problem. And then sadly, because of the pandemic and now because of this current administration's border policies, we've seen opioid deaths climb back up over 100,000, which is which is really one of the very sad stories of the last couple of years. Well, Andrew, thank you for explaining that. Thank you, Captain. That was a very good question. Let's let's talk about Bragg. Yeah. Okay? He's been in the news, you know, <laughs> all over the place. And in regards to Alvin Bragg, putting, you know, Trump and Bragg aside, What's your feeling on, you know, decriminalization with the Bragg? I mean, that seems to be his message. Let's downrate everything. You know, if it's a felony, we'll make it a violation. If it's a violation, in some cases, like this case we're seeing now, we'll try to make it a felony. So what is your thoughts on Bragg himself? Yeah, well, on the, I think the third day of his administration, I called on Governor Kathy Hochul to remove him from office because I think when he wrote his letter to his assistant district attorneys, which I think was on January 3rd of 2022, saying that he didn't want to prosecute certain violent crimes, I think he violated his oath of office. And I think he violated, I believe it's Article 2, Section 1 of the New York State Constitution in doing that. And the governor, we don't have recall in the state of New York like they do in other states like California, where we've seen DAs get recalled out there. But the governor does have the power to remove Bragg or any of the 62 district attorneys from the different counties in the state of New from office. And I think Bragg had certainly violated the oath that he swore to just a few days early. And I think it was the first, probably not the first sign because we knew this during the campaign, but I think it was the first sign as an elected official that Bragg really only cared about progressive politics, and I shouldn't even say progressive because really it's chaos-inducing politics rather than actually doing his job. Whatever political differences we may have, I think we should all agree that violent criminals, it's not going to make our city, it's not going to make the borough of Manhattan, if you will, a safer place if violent criminals just come back on the street without spending any time trying to rehabilitate, trying to pay for their consequences. And sadly, we're stuck with this guy that in a borough like Manhattan, where 81% of Manhattanites voted for him. So in terms of this current case, I think that's really what he's doing. I think he's playing to two people, or I should say two groups of people. One, I think he's playing to his 81% that voted him in in Manhattan and saying that, you know what, I'm going to push a far left agenda And in doing that, I'm going to still have enough support in Manhattan to be reelected. And secondly, 
He is looking at the person who funded his campaign, George Soros, and saying, this is something that Soros wants to do. He wants he wants to make sure that he is targeting President Trump and he's targeting conservatives. And he's shown he's willing to use the justice system to do that. Seems everyone at Soros has backed politically, you know, all the politicians, including Bragg, mm-hmm. they seem to be uh, protecting the criminals and not the uh, not the victims. You're right. I mean, this is not just a problem that's exclusive to New York County. I mean, you, you look at Philadelphia, look at St. Louis, where you had the McCluskeys who were defending their house. And and I think Gardner, I think, is her name in St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken. But they didn't fire a shot or anything like that. They just they showed their weapons to get off our property. And she still ended up trying to prosecute them. So he absolutely is backing these district attorneys that will undermine, it seems like, not just our police, not only our police, but really the rule of law as well. So it's our justice system. It's taking the laws that are on the books and saying, we don't want you to enforce or to prosecute. You know, it's the, to think of the lexicon, it's the law and the order side of it that they're going, that they're going after at this point. And it's very sad as somebody who has a 16-month-old daughter, and I think about her future in this state and in this country, it motivates me every day to ask, what am I doing to play my part to fight back against this? Captain? I'm assuming that if you had become our governor, you would have removed him from office. Yes. That would have been, I don't know if that would have been the very first thing I would have done, but it would have been within the very first hour. We'll put it that way. It was a combination of reducing the absurd regulations that I think are chasing so many New Yorkers down. It would have been immediately ending the bail reform law and sending a bill right to the desks of the Speaker of the Assembly and the head of the state Senate and removing Alvin Bragg. So all three of those things would have done in the very first hour of taking office because I think they've, when, I think when you think of the things that have made New Yorkers leave over the last few years. And we lead the country in out-migration, sadly, even with what's going on in places like Chicago, Illinois, and in California, where they are seeing more and more people leave. New York is actually beating them in out-migration, sadly. And I think, really, it's the fact that more violent crime is happening now in New York than it's happened in the last decade plus. And I think businesses are looking and saying, hey, we're having trouble surviving here not only because we're having trouble protecting our storefronts, but also because taxes and the regulations are so high rather than going to some business friendly states like Texas and the Carolinas and Florida. And that's why I think you've seen kind of this mass exodus down 95. You mentioned, we talked about being the governor. Since you've ran, crime has gotten worse in New York State. I was going to ask you, how do you feel about Governor Hochul's response to the crime problem? Needs Lots of improvement. We'll put it that way. And I think that's probably the most diplomatic thing that I could say in terms of it. Look, I think that when she, we'll just take a look at since she's been elected for the first time, when she gave the members of the assembly in the state Senate a raise without getting any of her agenda through, I think she lost whatever leverage she would potentially have in this budget negotiation that's happening, that's ongoing right now as well as looking to looking at her Supreme Court nominee. So she, to me, has sadly just not lived up to the billing 
And you could see that. I mean, you could see when even when Adams, who I think also is somebody who is not using his leverage, but will talk tough sometimes, even when he's talked about going up to Albany and getting bail reform, getting judges to even have discretion in bail reform, he can barely get a meeting on this stuff. Hochul could have used her leverage and partnered with the mayor if they really wanted to get it done to actually press the right buttons and put the pressure on Carl Hasty, the Speaker of the Assembly, and Andrea Stewart-Cousins. Hasty's the Senate Speaker and, and the Senate Leader, and, uh, and Stewart-Cousins is actually the Assembly Leader. But I think, sadly, she's just not getting the job done at this point. You know, speaking of Hasty, he's from the Bronx, right? He is. And that, they have a terrible problem up there. This is, this is mind-boggling. He you know, represents the Bronx, and yeah. yet he's he's not doing anything to help the situation. You know, Captain, you're absolutely right. And I just saw some polling last week or the week before, 67%. So two-thirds of his district, which, by the way, his district is 85% Democrat. 67% of his district believe the judges should have discretion in setting bail. So they really want to change. And I think even in some of the bluest areas of New York, the most Democratic areas of New York, they're even looking and saying, hey, we're having a real problem. And I think part of that is because crime is going up in some of these areas even more than in you know, some of the traditionally less crime-ridden neighborhoods, like maybe in places like Manhattan. So you're absolutely right. I think Carl Hasty, I hope this and I hope it's a wake-up call to him. I'm not sure if it will be, because he also seems to be pushing a strong leftist agenda. But if that's not a wake-up call that his district, that his constituents are saying, you're not getting the job done for us and we don't feel safe, then I don't know, I don't know what's ever going to wake him up. <laughs> Besides being against bail reform or having a change, if you were governor, what else would you do to address the serious crime problem that we have in New York State? I think immediately what I would do, and, and I've thought about this, what can you do from day one as governor? And I look right at the subways here in New York City, because if you think about it, the MTA, actually, the governor has more board seats on the MTA than the mayor even does. And that goes back to Robert Moses and basically the, the power struggles of wanting to control who you would appoint to that. But I would utilize that board and I would make sure that we get cops, hopefully be able to work with the mayor and get NYPD officers on trains and on the platforms and actually cleaning up the subways versus, so going back to kind of completing the thought a little bit, I'd want to make sure that we clean out the subways as clear as possible starting on day one. Hopefully we could use NYPD officers. If not, we'll talk about state troopers on that. But I think the mayor actually would have wanted to work with a Republican governor more than the Democratic governor, because I think it would allow him to have his cake and eat it too. He could be accepted in the cocktail parties that he wants to go to or the clubs that he wants to go to. And he could point to the Republican governor in Albany and say, you see, they're making me do these tough on crime policies. I'm pushing back on him. Now he's kind of the tough guy in the room when you put him and Hochul and Andrea Stewart Cousins and Carl Hasty in that room, which really scares me if this mayor is going to be the one who's going to be the voice of reason in that room. And I think it shows how astray that we've been. But I would immediately look right at the subways because you have mo the most control as the governor in that. You could put the most pressure on the mayor. And I would look and say, if we can clean up our subway cars and our platforms, then New Yorkers could see a real juxtaposition between what they would see above ground and what they would see below ground. And I have to tell you, I know there's been talk about cleaning up the subways, but I even took the subway here and around 1130 in the afternoon, leaving from City Hall, I still saw 
five different people that were sleeping on the subways with their bags in packed train cars. A couple, couple weeks ago, I saw a guy, now it was early, it was coming into the morning show here at WABC, but I saw a guy who actually was using at 4.45 in the morning on the four train. So, you know, this is, I know there's been talk that we've seen progress on the subways, but I, I just personally, I haven't seen it yet. And it's scary. What would you do about the existing laws that passed that are hampering our police forces? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think it's probably one of the toughest questions to answer in terms of how you would actually press those buttons. I think that's where you need to have a really good corporations council, basically a lawyer, where you can look at those laws, challenge them and say, we need to make sure that we're taking the cuffs off of our cops. Because right now, it is a little bit tougher if you think about the laws that have been added over the last 10 to 12 years. And you could go back to some of the stop and frisk laws that were put on the books. And I know Schindlin oversaw that, but I think you need to challenge some of the constitutionality of it. And I think you'd need to do everything that you possibly could to show New Yorkers that, hey, look, we're not just talking tough here. We're going to actually make sure that we utilize every single part of government to challenge, to make sure you do that. But I would ultimately, very first, I would make sure that our police officers could go in there and say, hey, look, you know, you cannot sleep on our subways here. You can't do that. We can show you where the nearest shelter is. We can try to get you to a place where you can get some help. But sadly, when we're talking about so many people that are schizophrenic or have other mental health issues or maybe drug users, the last place that I want them is in a tin can that's moving 50 miles an hour on the tracks with other families. So it's a great question. I think it's probably one of the most challenging ones, but the best thing that I could say about it is I would have a really, really good corporations council team to challenge some of these in court so that way we can roll some of them back. One of the biggest problems is the state coming up with the concept of doing away with uh, qualified immunity. Yes. Which is a Supreme Court decision, applies to the entire country, Mm -hmm. and the state enacted legislation to strip the cops of that, and then the city went a step further. So you have it in two places. You yeah. have it statewide and citywide. Yeah. That's why cops don't want to work. They're afraid yeah. of getting sued and losing their, you know, their homes and the like. So I assume that you would introduce legislation to change that. Absolutely. It's something I mentioned on the gubernatorial trail almost a daily, it, protecting our cops' qualified immunity and bringing it back and making sure it was something that we could protect here in New York. And I think it's one of the reasons why we've seen so many police officers that have moved down to Florida where they look and say, you know what, I feel like I'm protected here, not just by the laws, but also by my politicians over here. You know, I think far too often over the last few years, we've seen politicians in New York who are too quick to throw our cops under the bus. But you're absolutely right. In terms of a qualified immunity standpoint, I think it's also another reason why we're seeing, and you guys can probably help me with the numbers on this, but the last time I saw the recruiting class for 2023 is about 600 or so. Is that, yes, is that right? Yes, that's pretty accurate. Yes. And, and you compare that to 20 years ago, you were talking about over 2000, right? Oh yeah. My class was 2,500 in 1985. 2,500. So I know we have some of the biggest classes right now that are graduating, you know, 20 years, I should say, that are getting to their 20 year mark between 02, 03 and 04. So we're filling them with only about a third of the amount of police officers that that are leaving at this point. And with lower standards. Lower standards. Can't even run the, the mile and a half anymore. I know it's it's scary. When my wife and I talk about our future in New York and my daughter's future in New York, we talk about two things. We talk about her education, what's that going to look like? 
And is she going to be safe? And right now, to both of those questions, our answers are nowhere near what we think they need to be in order to raise her in a safe place. True. Andrew, on that note, speaking about recruitment and retention with the NYPD, and actually on a national level as well, but definitely in NYPD, what would your recommendation be in regards to recruitment and retention? Well, you mentioned qualified immunity. You have to make sure that you can bring back and protect officers' qualified immunity because, you know, I don't know if I could in good conscience recommend to somebody right now to take the test to get into the NYPD at this point. It would be as incredible of an organization as the NYPD is. If I had somebody who was a close friend at this point, I would say, I don't know if you have the backing that you need on a political level where if you're in a gray area and you're trying to do your job and be proactive, you're going to ultimately get the backing that you need to not get in trouble. And so for me, I'd look at qualified immunity right there as kind of one of the first things. Secondly, I'd look at some of these laws that have been hampering our cops over the last three or four years. And third, I would be very, very clear that you would have a, I would say you would have, but I'd be very clear as a political leader that Police officers have my backing in this state, in this city, in this country. And I think that needs to be a very, very clear message in that, look, we want you to be proactive. I want you to be proactive because it protects New Yorkers. It actually protects statistically more black and brown minority New Yorkers than it does even white New Yorkers. But this narrative has been turned on its head. So I think it's so important that you actually have political leaders that are willing to step out there and say, I will protect you if you go into those gray areas. If a police officer does something willfully illegal, then guess what? They, I am going to push that they are held to the full extent of the law if they willfully are, just like any New Yorker. But if they're doing their job, being proactive, trying to clean up New York, then you will have somebody that will stand by them as, as this is something that I learned, really learned from my father, you know? So, Andrew, one last question. Yeah. What are your political, what is your plans in the future? <laughs> you know, right now, I'm just really enjoying my time at WABC. John and Margot Matisse have created this amazing public square, as I like to call it, where we can have these incredible conversations. And I saw it on the campaign trail. I think this is one of the things that was so wonderful was when I would go on the morning show or, or I'd go on with Greg Kelly or Curtis or, or even my father. I'd hear people say, oh, I, I heard you on WABC. And it really, it, it dawned on me that this is our 21st century public square, especially for conservatives here in the city of New York. And it doesn't mean that every single host is conservative. We've seen certainly people on the other side of the aisle that have come here, but I'm a big believer in more speech is better than less speech. I'm a big believer in that First Amendment. Even if I may disagree with you, I'll protect your right to speak. And I just think that my ideas and our ideas will be able to outshine with that versus some of the lack of transparency that we've seen in other facets of the media. So in terms of what my future is, look, I'm going to make sure that in whatever capacity, I'm still fighting to make this city and this state and this country a better place because my daughter's future depends on it. You started at an early age. I was at City Hall when your father was sworn in. Yeah. And you took over. You took over. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, at at right. seven years old. Seven years old. Oh, my goodness. You, you were the hit of the day. <laughs> you know, it was one of those things. I was just at seven years old. I was pointing out people that I knew in the crowd. And there was a girl who I had a crush on that I was blowing a kiss to. I figured what better way to to show that I liked her than blow a kiss when you're on stage right there. 
So another fun thing about that that people didn't realize was it was 15 degrees that day. It was a freezing cold January 2nd in 94. And I actually ended up, because I was moving around so much, my father had a glass of water there. And you can imagine it was pretty cold at that point. I knocked it over and onto his shoes. So when he looked down, that's when I took the mic from him and said his, his <laughs> reign in there. So needless to say, I was a handful, but I'm, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity and have the opportunity to get to know so many of our men and women who've, who've donned the badge because they've helped make me the man that I am. And they've helped to, I think, educate me in terms of what needs to be done to help society through what I think is is a very difficult time right now. I'm an optimist. I believe that we're going to get through this. I don't necessarily know how. That's a little bit of probably, you know, considering we're right around Holy Week. That's probably a little bit of my... But I also know that there's a lot of goodness in people. And I know that there are a lot of men and women, a lot of civil servants, not not just police officers that are doing it because they want this city, they want the state, they want this country to be a better place. So I'm, I'm happy to always lend my support to them because they're the real heroes. Yes, Sandra, thank you. Also, the year your dad was sworn in, the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup. I know. 1994. You know, he, as mayor, the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. The Yankees won four World Series here. So he takes a lot of credit for them actually winning here. I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but let's put it this way. As a big Ranger fan... If the Rangers do end up winning in 19, in they're almost 30 years later now, as they're going to be making hopefully a playoff run here, I'd, I'd gladly sacrifice the Rangers actually winning and getting it done and giving Adams a little bit of credit for getting the Rangers to get it done. I don't care what whatever gets the Rangers to win the Stanley gotcha. Cup. So. Gotcha. I agree <laughs> with that. But Andrew, I'd like to thank you for being our guest today thank you. on Cop Talk. And I, we're going to be listening to your show on Sundays between 3 and 4 p.m. on WABC Radio and also your podcast. Not that Andrew. It's Andrew Giuliani, right? <laughs> but thank you so much for being here. Well, Detective thank Captain, you. thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you. Thank you for everything that thank you've you. done. And thank you for everyone who listened to Cop Talk.